Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Holds Barred. I'm joined on the line by Elaine Curtin. How are, how are you doing, Elaine? Hello, Flav. Thank you for having me. <laughs> That's a pleasure. Uh, full disclosure, um, I've had some uh, a therapy, a session with Elaine for something I needed help with relatively recently. And during that session, Elaine was coming out with some really stuff that was helping me, but I found fascinating and wanted to sort of speak more about um, but before we get into that, Elaine, what, what's in terms of your the counselling and the, uh, and your your history and and your you know I guess your credentials as a counsellor, just so people understand what it is you you know you you've, you've done in your past and what kind of counsellor you are? Could you give a brief rundown of what you've what you've done? Yes, of course. So um, I'm a qualified human givens therapist, so I have um, a diploma in human givens, which means that I've done quite a lot of training and examinations and report. And there's a lot with human givens, um, the, there's a lot of there's a lot of practical experience during the training and ongoing uh, supervision and uh, and ongoing training is expected as well. So the human givens approach is one that I've been participating in for you know a few years, but I also received human givens therapy which is why I really, really like it, um, because all of us at different times in our lives need a bit of support. And Human Givens Therapy works very much with the client in front of them and whatever it is that's going on, if they're a bit stuck or finding you know certain things a bit difficult. It's nice to have that additional support um, from a therapist who kind of you know understands where you're at and, and works with you. Um, so before, I found it very before, useful and then went was, and trained it was, in it. So. So it's an amazing thing, like human given. So we're going to talk about this because um, it's something I've been talking about for, for and, and push, not pushing, like just recommending to my friends that have issues that I think they would definitely benefit from this type of therapy. Before we get into what it is and how it works, um, do, what did, was you a counsellor in another field beforehand? No, I wasn't. I'm very much um, from a business background. Oh, wow. And funnily enough, I do have a degree in psychology, but from sort of 30, 35 years ago. And, and really a lot of the content there isn't very relevant to to, to current practices. Um, it was really in the 90s uh, with MRI scans that we started to get a better understanding of what was really going on with the brain. And so there's this 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 evolution, if you like, the development of human givens um, has come about in relatively recent years, but based on 
um, science and real understanding and put together by psych psychologists and psych psychotherapists who really had worked in the field for a long, long time. Um, so I have a degree in psychology, but that wasn't necessary to become a human givens counsellor. You know, the training is extensive. And um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a, an organising idea. Um, it's an approach um, that works um, on the basis that as human beings, that we're, we're living organisms, and we have innate emotional needs that need to be met healthily and in balance in our in our environment and we also have the resources needed to to have those needs met so if we when we start to explain um the approach to you know, to to our clients they they you know they feel quite empowered because they they can understand what it is they need to do how would you how would you explain that approach then because people listen to this won't know what human givens is they'll and they, and and the very the the sound of the, the the you know human givens is isn't a familiar it doesn't sit familiar familiarly if that's such a word you know it's just it, it's not like when I first heard it I thought well, that sounds like some sort of hocus pocus therapy I didn't I didn't it what the name what I didn't buy into but it wasn't until someone very close to me actually did the therapy or went through one session and had such a miraculous recovery that I just couldn't believe how effective this was. And through the years, I've had maybe five different sessions for five different things, and it's worked every single time. So can you explain what the approach of the human givens therapy is? Of course. Okay. So the, so the law of all living organisms, of which you know, human beings are one, is that to, to survive, um, we must take nourishment from the environment. Um, and we do that to continually maintain and to rebuild ourselves. So we have an, an innate guidance system um, which helps us to reach our full potential. Um, and that's half genetic and, and obviously learnt from our environment. And so like all animals, we need air to breathe or water to drink and nutrition and from the food that we eat. And we tend to know that we're hungry and we tend to know when we're thirsty. But when our innate emotional needs um, aren't being met, we start to feel a little uneasy and a little bit like something's not quite right in our world. So we have the resources that we need to have our needs met, but equally we have innate emotional needs and they're crucial for our well-being and, and sometimes survival. So how well our innate and incomplete patterns of need are completed in the world determine many aspects of our personality, our character, how well we develop physically and emotionally, the way we interact with other people and what, and what we achieve in life. So if our of our patterns of need or innate emotional needs are matched up in a fairly balanced way, then life is life is pretty good and we feel content and, and in balance. Um, I mean, fundamentally, it's it's difficult or impossible to be mentally unwell if you're having your innate emotional needs met healthily. Uh, the, are these are these innate emotional needs definable? Can you tell us what they what they are? I can. And the things that we, we probably all know about and, and in fact, during during this pandemic and, and in lockdown, a lot of our innate emotional needs stopped being met quite healthily and sort of not really, you know, it was a little out of our control. So I could run through those needs. So the resources that we have and the needs that we have, all of those make up what we call the human givens. So it's a given, if you like, as human beings that we should have these things and met healthily in our environment. So the needs are things like security, um, having a sense of control, um, having a sense of status, you know, where we stand in the world. And then other things like privacy, having intimate relationships, a sense of achievement, being part of a community, 
uh, a sense of meaning and purpose and, and also attention giving and receiving so those nine those nine needs fundamentally make up what we call the human givens and if we can get those needs met healthily and in balance and be in control of those then we tend to feel quite balanced and, and happy i um i found when we were speaking that that i felt like i was quite balanced like i felt like my needs were being met and it wasn't until we actually started talking that I realized that there were aspects in it that that led me to be doing the things I was doing that that weren't being met actually and 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 I often I feel like and you'll notice I'm sure but you you're you're often not honest with yourself about um th- things that you don't want to to be a reality in your life um and and acknowledging them is is maybe like the first step I guess yes you bring in awareness to any situation is um is a good thing and we have a natural process you know as human beings to to be more objective about ourselves is actually a specific uh, part of our brain that allows us to step back and be more objective and when we're feeling a bit stuck or something in our life isn't going well or we're feeling emotional um it's sometimes it's hard to engage that part of our thinking you know being emotional you know, it's 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 so important because it's it's what motivates us and helps us to achieve the things that we want in life. But sometimes when that balance goes out a little, we can respond to something in, a, in an emotional way that we're not happy with. And that could be through, you know, maybe having anger outbursts or feeling a bit withdrawn or maybe even indulging in something, I don't know, something addictive perhaps that you're not comfortable with. Um, it could be coffee, <laughs> smoking, um, mm. various choices that we make. Is, they're often in place to, to help us get our needs met in, in an unhealthy way. So if we know what our needs are and we take control of the situation and go forward and help ourselves get our needs met by being more objective and fixing those things or at least signposting ourselves in the right direction, then we find that we can, you know, we can, we can be a lot stronger about the choices that we make. You mentioned uh, addiction there, and um, I think I think a lot of us, be, if we're being really honest, it would be cigarettes, or it would be alcohol, it could be drugs, it could be social media. Um, there's many different types of addiction, but people often go to substances when they think. So, what, what's what's happening in the brain there? If if it's if it, if if you think about the human givens approach, that if it's about there being a lacking in one of these areas, and so. Um, you might move towards a substance that helps dull that that specific... Uh, yeah, or perhaps fake, fake. inadvertently helps you have that need met. So, for example, if you're a smoker, um, it could be that by smoking, you feel you're connecting more to the people that you're around with and having that human connection is a, an innate emotional need. Um, or it could be um, that with gambling, perhaps you're going to have more money and actually that, that helps with your sense of security. So it's, it's sometimes these things are very gradual and we can find ourselves in a position where we're actually getting the, the, the chemical hit, if you like, the, the up, if, if you like, from indulging in something that we believe is helping us to get our needs met. But just to, just to explain about these sort of more addictive behaviours that we have, um, I mean, those of us with, without the skills or strategies on how to manage when needs aren't being met can indulge in what you might describe as dangerous or, or destructive behaviour such as alcohol abuse or smoking, for example. Um, and really any pleasurable experience can become addictive. And it's 
it's an apparent sort of design flaw, if you like, in our in our thinking. I mean, why does that happen to us as human beings? Um, but in actual fact, it's overlaying a really nice mechanism that we have in our brain. It's, it's what we might call the learning cycle in our brain. So our learning cycle where, you know, we we strive to go forward and progress and learn new things as, as human beings. And for any experience or activity that the brain approves of, it gives you a feeling of pleasure when you carry it out. That would be normal, wouldn't it? It would be nice to be rewarded for doing good things. And mm. and and as far as the brain is concerned, it's actually help, helping you get your fundamental needs met by issuing, you know, a feeling of feeling, feeling happy, feeling good. Um, However, the brain doesn't continue to give you the same amount of pleasure every time you repeat an experience. Um, otherwise, you wouldn't move on. So the idea is that you're going to progress. So it's that learning cycle. So, for example, if you started running three miles a day, got yourself off the sofa, out running, the first time you do that, you'd feel really good. You know, you feel very motivated when you, when you got back home. And then the second time you go out, you'd also feel really good when you come back home, maybe not quite as good, but you feel good about yourself because you've gotten up and you've done something and you've achieved a great thing. But the third or the fourth day, it's quite possible that you wouldn't feel the same. So you might need to run for longer. And what the brain does is it's rewarding you <clears throat> for improving and doing more of the things that's actually helping you. But it wants you to do more because that's a natural thing to want to strive to do more. So the brain wants, to, wants you to maintain, but also wants you to improve. But then it, when you stop doing it because you're not getting as much pleasure from it anymore, the brain punishes you. So it's a carrot and stick situation. So it's part of the learning cycle. So it motivates you to do more, but it always wants more for you to feel the same high, if you like, as you did the first time. Mm. And then when you stop doing it, there's a, there's a withdrawal. There's a sense of it not feeling as good and actually feeling quite bad when you don't do it. And then after a week or two, you know, it's easy to sort of maybe give up because actually it's not such a pleasurable experience anymore. So that's hijacked the learning cycle in the brain always wants you to do more and kind of punishes you if you don't do more. So we have to understand that. So how do you develop a mindset to get past that after the, the, the inertia that sets in after two weeks or whatever it might might be? What what can you do to, I mean, I don't know if you know an answer to that, but what? Yeah, well, what, you know, I guess it's good to have an understanding of why you're taking the exercise in the first place and to stay focused on that and maybe to improve or to have other rewards in place for yourself. You know, that you know that you've done that and that's a great thing and have, you know, th treats, etc., for yourself available. So that was just one example of how the, how the brain works. But the, it does like, it likes to encourage you, our brain likes to encourage us to, to do new things. And it also likes to encourage us to do more of it. So for that reason, that's why an addictive substance can become addictive because the brain likes it. It's tricking the brain, if you like, that this is a pleasurable experience <clears throat> and you feel like you need more and more of it to have have, have that high. So having an awareness of that is, is helpful in the first place. So the addiction is you're, you're becoming addicted, you, you become addicted to the feeling that the brain, that the chemicals, chemicals are created in the brain based on the substance that's going into you. That's right. And then when you reduce it, so when you decide to you know, smoke less, there's a natural um, process that your, your, your brain starts to feel like it needs the cigarette. So there's, there's messaging coming from the limbic system into the, the, so the higher thinking, the, into the neocortex, that we actually need to have that, have that cigarette system. You know, we, need, we need to have the, the, the nicotine in our system, otherwise the brain is starting to panic a little. So we need to kind of hold tough. But we, we do work as human givens therapists. We use guided imagery and we, we counter condition 
that thinking so that it becomes easier on, on, a, on a deeper level to actually say no to so, so we have a specific protocol that we, we use for any anything that's addictive um, to, you know, to, um, to help the client to face up to it and, and actually move on from it and get their needs met better. And we also help them rehearse a situation where they don't have that in their lives and, and feel confident and feel good about it. So there's a number of steps to that, but it's a very straightforward process that we have as human givers therapists. Um, you know, uh, it's strange, isn't it? Because, you know, we're inbuilt with a, an instinctual survival um you know, we, when we're, we're ba babies, we have an instinct in, the, in in us to survive. There are mechanisms that a baby might um, react to danger or react to falling by putting their arms out, right? It's something that's instinctual based on what they, you know, they are as, as tiny little human beings. But the brain doesn't, in, in terms of substances, doesn't have that instinctual uh, protective nature for you, does it? It just, it just... It, evolves or, or changes based on what you choose to put in your body rather than although that said the first time you drink alcohol you're sick everywhere right so maybe that's the warning and the first cigarette is always terrible but we go for Disgusting. the second <laughs> it's the, the driver to have needs met really um but the fact that people want to stop and there's a there is there is a ladder if you like of where people are at when they look to stop there's the moment when there's a thought that they might like to stop or there's you know, other people perhaps are yeah. saying you're drinking a little too much or then there's the step where you're seriously considering it and then there's the step when you're ready ready to stop and then there's potentially the relapse step as well and when when somebody stops something and then they have a maybe one or two little relapses then that's a great opportunity to see what needs actually aren't being met because all of this mm. is a journey isn't it it's 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 an experience it's, a, it's an awareness of yourself and why you're indulging in something it's come to the point where you, you know and you being a part of your brain knows i need to stop doing this um so we also have the survival instinct that we you know we want to improve things and change it's very yeah it's very very tr true what you say there, there isn't a drinker out there or a smoker out there that doesn't want to stop i mean there may be a couple that just think i don't care this is it but like they like you say there might be reasons for why they're even have such an extreme view with with drinking or smoking but most smokers want to stop most that do and that's that is the brain offering a an olive branch. offering an alternative <laughs> yeah. you know that ability we have to step back which is that strong which is a part of our brain that in encourage you know when we're feeling emotional you know emotions are, are great are great things they can save our lives you know they can m make our bodies move in a way to get out of a place of danger when we need to. You know, emotions are absolutely essential. I mean, we, you know, it's 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 the limbic system is makes up, you know, of, you know, part of the brain, and um, it's there to help us get out of a place of danger when we need to, and to take physical action. That's what the emotional emotions are for. And there's also a part of our brain that helps us to step back and be more objective. But when we're emotional, you know, we'll argue anything. You know, we we hold our ground when we're feeling like we've got a point to make and we're, we're in that black and white thinking place of emotional thinking. Nobody is going to tell us otherwise. So when we're in the, the trance, if you like, or if we're in the enchanted place of smoking is a good thing or it's OK to get, you know, completely blind, drunk on a Saturday night every week of your life. When we're in that place, needs are being met. 
And we believe that that's, that's true. It's only when we start to calm down and reflect and look at things from a bit of a distance that actually we can loosen up that black and white thinking and see shades of grey or sometimes even a rainbow. <laughs> so, so we have a part of our brain which is there to keep us safe. And when we're there, we will absolutely believe our thinking is correct. We go into black and white thinking. Usually we catastrophize when we're emotional, which is something we need to do and you know, to get ourselves out of a place of, of danger. Um, but we equally have a part of our brain which will help us step back and be more, more detached, if you like, and see things, have a different perspective. And when in our evolution as, as individuals, when we're ready for that moment, um, it's nice that there's something in place to help us do that. It's like when you're in a very sort of volatile and, and and explosive argument with someone you love and you get so you're saying stuff and sometimes things come out of your mouth and you go, I know, where did it come in? And I know that's not true. What I've just said is not true. Or you just, or you want to hurt the other person. You want to say something that hurts them. So in that moment gives you a feeling of, you know, I've I've won up to you there. I've 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 hurt you more than you're hurting me. You know, you're beating your chest in the jungle, aren't you? You know, it's it's yeah. it's there to, you know, anger is a very important emotion. It's 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 one of those um, sort of positive emotions in the sense that you'll take action, real action. But what happens is when we get emotional and our limbic system takes over our thinking and hijacks us really and um, in those moments we we absolutely lose all perspective and really the other parts of our brain shut down because that's that would be the correct thing to happen if we're under threat is we'd have to get ourselves yeah. out of that place go into fight or flight and um so it's so it's understandable when we're angry i mean the last thing you can do with an angry person is have an argument with them because they're never going to back down from what they're thinking what what they really want is for you to connect with them on some level and 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 help them become calm or leave them alone for a short period of time mm. you know so yeah, we help people with anger issues and, and we give them you know help them signpost them to techniques that help them calm down maybe leave the space for a short period of time regain their sense because in actual fact their their perspective has altered in that moment and really they're not going to speak the truth they're going to speak what they need to to support their their perspective in that in, in those short few minutes so helping them calm down, actually telling an angry person to calm down is probably, <laughs> as I think we all know, probably isn't going to help. Or speaking calmly or quietly to somebody who really wants you to shout with, with them isn't, um, isn't helpful either. So. Yeah, so you're looking at someone who is angry and there are needs that, they, that, that need to be met there in order to reverse the situation. But if they're not being met or not given the space that enables them to calm down, then the situation is only going to become exacerbated. Yeah, I mean, we all saw the um, clip, didn't we, a couple of years ago of Boris Johnson in the um, hospital ward, and he was, um, you know, with the with the whole press corps, and the angry parent whose child was sick in that hospital, you know, confronted him, and yeah. and he was angry, and you know, arguably, understandably so, and he was being told by Mr. Johnson, um, no, there's there's no camera crew here. I, I don't know what you're talking about. And other people around were actually um, telling him to calm down. So, please, sir, you're going to have to keep calm. This is a hospital. He knew it was a hospital. His child was sick in that hospital. So he just got yeah. angrier. And of course, in, in the view of the cameras, he seemed like the irrational, angry person. Um, whereas if somebody had raised their voice to the same level as his, and looked him straight in the eye and said, yes, I absolutely agree with you. You're right to be angry. And I'm angry with you. 
he would have calmed down more quickly. But not everyone's a counsellor and understands these things. <laughs> well, we've, all, we've all learned things the hard way, trust me. <laughs> um, so uh, panic attacks is a massive thing. Anxiety is a massive thing. Um, and uh, when I first started suffering from anxiety, um, I'd, I'd lived with someone who had extreme anxiety and extreme panic attacks. And then I think through time... I just sort of picked up on it and it, it became, I, you know, I, I was aware when it was suddenly that the anxiety was was something real. And before then, I hadn't even had to consider it. I didn't I never thought about it. So I went through that period and then had panic attacks. And my overriding feeling at that time was, why is this happening to me? I feel like such a freak. No one around me is having panic attacks. Or at least I realize now that often you can't see when someone's having panic attacks. And that's what happened with me in my early 20s is that I would have these panic attacks at work. But I was so good at not showing any symptoms outwardly that I could have them at my desk. No one would know. I'd be freaking out, but in a very quiet and uh, controlled way because I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I didn't want I didn't feel like as a young, young man that I should be having should be feeling afraid and terrified in an office environment where there's nothing scary yeah and but and it seems much more common as i've gone older and people become a bit more open and happy to talk about it that this is much more common than i thought so what just 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 for people that don't know i haven't experienced it what is happening in the body when someone is having a panic attack okay so there's some sort of what what we in human givens would describe as an activating agent or a trigger and the our, our brain is a pattern matching uh, part of our body so so what happens is we we respond to that trigger and for whatever reason in the history or in the situation or in the environment with that particular person um what happens is the the limbic system and our, and our limbic system is is scanning pretty much all the time of looking for potential threat in our environment but that that comes in so there's a response and it's a trigger and the limbic system our little friend, the amygdala, the security officer in our brain, and says, "Oh, hang on, there's something here, and um, that I need to be um, need to be careful about. There's something threatening in the environment, and it could actually be something has happened, um, which is why we have this this system, or it could well be that there's a, an old memory, or maybe a traumatic memory, or something there which has gotten triggered. So the limbic system does what it does." And it effectively produces the cortisol, the stress hormone gets produced. That then in turn through the nervous system uh, means that adrenaline gets produced by the adrenal glands in our body, which means our heart rate starts to beat a bit faster because there's more adrenaline. And we then need to draw in air more quickly to support that heart rate. And before we know it, we're, we're sort of in a place of feeling that sort of very heightened emotional and physical arousal. We could effectively run a marathon at those times because the fight or flight system, the sympathetic nervous system has, has kicked in and it's there to keep us safe and get us out of a place of danger. Now you're sitting in an office, presumably there's nothing going on in that environment which would cause that. So as a human givens therapist, if you were a client of mine, we would discuss a bit more about when that happens, how when it first happened, what your experience is. And we will try and locate whether there's actually a traumatic memory, which we again have a very good protocol to help people process um, traumatic memories. A lot of our work is with ex-military, paramedics, fire rescue services, people who have actually experienced trauma, PTSD, and want to move on and come to us and, and we help 
and support them as well as members of the public um, obviously because often at the back of anxiety there might be a, a traumatic memory so the body goes into the fight or flight so it's the equivalent of being you know in the bush if you like and there's a tiger coming towards you and obviously when that happens when a tiger comes towards you in in, a, in, in the in, in the bush then what you want to do is is get yourself out of there as quickly as possible so the limbic system would kick in all of those things would happen cortisol adrenaline heart rate etc so that the limbs will move so you can put yourself into fight or flight so the sympathetic nervous system has been switched on and it happens more quickly than we can even say the word tiger because when it comes to things like this the limbic system responds far quicker than our, our neocortex our more rational intellectual thinking and for good reason when you're in a place of danger the rest of your brain switches off so really in those minutes in that time your limbic system has hijacked all of your thinking so you're in an emotional state of mind and the only thing you can think of is i want to get the hell out of here <laughs> because mm. you're in your your body is getting ready to run you know go in you're in you're in fight or flight so that's a useful thing when you're you know in, in in a position of threat not such a useful thing obviously when you're sitting in an office as a, as a, as a young man so we teach um, a very nice relaxation breathing exercise called 7-Eleven Breathing. So if you came to me as a client, the first thing I would do is... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I would teach you 7-Eleven breathing and hope that that would be this other... There are other ways, but this is a nice one. And what 7-Eleven what breathing does is it, it basically turns off that fight or flight and turns back on the parasympathetic system. So it actually turns back on all of those other resources that we have in our brain, which have been temporarily switched off. And it helps someone to, you know, helps you calm down. And when you're calm, that more detached step back part of your thinking can actually um, kind of help with your perspective but when we're in that emotional place that that emotionally aroused place and we're in fight or flight then it does feel um very very personal and that it's only happening to you and it's in everything 
And when we're in black and white thinking, we will catastrophize. So that's the, that's the triangle. You know, we, we go black and white, which means there's this or it's that. There are no shades of grey in an, a very emotional place. So what you've described there, Flav, as, as sitting in the office and thinking it's only happening to me and this is a terrible situation and how the hell am I going to get out of this is classic fight or flight thinking. And to calm that down, there's a very nice breathing exercise. And then eventually the, the body becomes used to being able to calm itself. Um, the, the lungs actually send those re that really nice message up to the brain. It's OK. Everything's calm because, you know, when you're frightened or angry or upset, we tend to take a breath, don't we? And it's yeah. it's actually breathing out is something that we we kind of almost have to tell ourselves to do. So by breathing out for longer then the in-breath, within a two or three breaths or within a minute, actually the body does really calm down and sends that message back to the limbic system. It's okay. We've got it sorted. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that'd be a great way of a, a tool to use while you're in mid-panic. Um, but human given... You know, maybe not just when you're in that mid-panic. So, you know, I, I suggest to clients that they practice 7-11 breathing as many times as they feel comfortable doing that, maybe in the morning and in the evening or a few times in the day, um, breathing in through the nose and out through the mouth. Um, and that's counting to seven and, and 11, right? Well, it, it, it's different for everybody. You know, it could be five and eight or six and 10. It, you know, we're all different, but in for seven and out for 11 tends to be, and it's not seconds either. It's just a count, one to seven yeah. and yeah. out for 11. And it just then actually calms the system down quite nicely. Um, um, I know that human givens have sort of several different approaches depending on what the problem is, but can you describe to someone, because people listening to this still won't know exactly what happens in a session, is it is there a way to describe it that would make sense to someone that didn't know? Yeah, I mean, it's it's we, 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 we get together, ideally in the room with each other or perhaps on Zoom or something like that. And um, what we do is we, we, we want to build a relationship with the client. So we very much listen to what's happening with them and the idea is they feel comfortable and relaxed and we build you know we gather some information we find out what's been happening if they have specific symptoms like you've described flav we, we'd ask when did it start when did it end just to get an understanding of the situation um we when it's not it's not a therapy where we go over lots of things that have happened in the past a lot we're very interested in understanding patterns and helping people move forward so obviously if if there's a story to be told, then it's important we, we listen and we, we understand the sort of the well, we look to understand and, you know, seek to understand really um, more about what's happening with the client and their perspective and, and what's happened. And then we set some goals together if the client wants to do that. You know, we decide, OK, what would you like to achieve today or in future sessions if you, if you choose to have those? And so we, we have an agreed set of goals if you like of objectives um, and then we we go through perhaps some of the resources that the person has as you mentioned earlier we're not always aware that our needs aren't being met you know as well as we think they are and also we have resources and and helping people understand what fantastic resources and skills they actually have is important too and then we move forward and we we'll often do a guided imagery if the, if the client is interested in that so you know we we have a in our in our brains and our thinking um, a great ability to use metaphor and understand really through a story perhaps more than with words and certainly when it comes to 
a lot of the issues, the essence of the problems, if you like, often are sitting in the in sort of our unconscious. So to tell someone a good story with a metaphor that they, they can relate well to is helpful. But we help them relax. And our aim is always to help that client feel more hopeful at the end of an appointment and help them move forwards at their own pace and using whatever resources they have and using storytelling and really working you know, with the perspective of the client in front of us really and move them forward and we will explain you know we do what we call psychoeducation we'll explain about addiction we'll explain about depression we'll explain about anxiety and we'll explain about trauma and how that works and how what our what our approach to helping trauma clear or be processed and and with their permission we'll move forward and, and help them resolve some of those matters really what my um the my based on the like I say five or six sessions through my life it's the guided imagery stuff that really hit home for me the real where I felt like it was that that moment where oh I get it I understand what this is I mean sorry I, I still don't understand how it works like how how it, it fixes things for me so quickly but it was that real the relaxation that you yeah, there was a metaphor, but it's not. So sometimes it isn't that either. It was something like I've, I've had like. I know it always is kind of like. I, sorry, I'm just going into internally here. This is not helpful to our audience. Um, but no, yes, um, yeah, going through that 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 the imagery in the brain, and it's almost is, is it is it unfair to say it's a sort of form of hypnotherapy, or is that too much? Well, we what we do is we you know we. Yeah, you, you could say that. I mean, what we're doing is we're helping our clients to relax and then using their imaginations, which is a really useful tool. It's actually the imagination that gets a little, goes a little awry when we're feeling anxious. So we're using a resource that the, the, the client has with use of the imagination. We help them imagine a situation that's better than the one that they're in. Um, and when we're relaxed, if you if you like, when we're asleep, and we can talk about sleep perhaps um, separately or in a bit more detail if you like. But when we when we yeah. sleep, we dream, don't we? So we this this is a natural process that our brain goes through as we dream every night, um, and we dream the, the the stories that we 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 bring to ourselves when we're dreaming are is that are actually in place to help us process our emotional arousal from the day. So any emotional arousal we have in the daytime that doesn't get finished. So if you like, a story starts with a with an emotion and it needs to conclude to an end so that we go, we can move our limbs and act. So all of our emotions want to conclude into some sort of action. And if we don't take the actions, if we have a desire for something and we don't actually allow ourselves to have that thing, when we sleep at nighttime, our brain will find a story probably an old story or a new story that helps us finish that finish that off. So our dreaming brain is a fantastic resource and it's an integral part of what keeps us sane. So any any anger issues or sadness or desires in the daytime, if we can't act them out, we will effectively discharge the emotion through sleep and through dreaming when we sleep. That's fascinating. And, sorry, and, sorry. and it, the kind of disruption really with people who suffer with things like depression is because that mechanism has, has become has gotten interfered with through, and, 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 and it might be useful to talk about that. But the so all we're doing is we're, we're, we're working with the person in front of us. We may not do guided imagery. We may just have a conversation. 
um, or we will relax them. It's just counting one to five or one to 10 and they're sitting in the chair and they close their eyes and they imagine they're in a beautiful place that, where they know they can relax and just be themselves. And then we help them, um, you know, just maybe imagine a situation or rehearse a situation that they're nervous about, but rehearse it in a positive way. Because, you know, if you were a surgeon and you were about to embark on a, on a big operation, the chances are is you would rehearse it. So why not rehearse it using your fantastic brain and imagination? And it's like you've done it for the first time. And then when you go back to work or if you when you do that public speaking, then it'll be like the second time. Do you know, do you know, I'm not sure if you're aware of this kind of, I don't know if it's a phenomenon, but it's something that definitely exists and, and I've benefited from in there. You have a problem or something that needs a solution and you can't do it it's it's beating you it might be a maths equation it might be a, a level on a computer game you can't beat i don't know what it, whatever it might be and you leave the problem as it is and you go to bed and you approach it the next day and you solve it much more quickly and easily absolutely our brains are fantastic pieces of equipment absolutely so they're sort of problem solving even when you're not conscious of it yeah well you know our, our brain let's face it our brain is the part of our body that's actually doing the problem solving and when we sleep of course, the brain is doing all those groovy, fantastic things that, you know, they help you when you wake up the next morning. And that's the purpose of sleep, isn't it? There's a really good book, actually, which I would recommend to your, your listeners. Um, it's called Why We Sleep. Um, I've got a copy of it here. Yeah, by Matthew Walker. Um, you know, it's a paperback. It's nine or ten pound. It's a fantastic read and it explains the importance of sleep. Um, and we have the, our slow wave sleep. We have our, our REM rapid eye movement sleep and it's during REM that we dream and all sorts of things happen when we're sleeping all that information from the daytime gets filed away the information that we don't need gets discarded uh, there's different stages in the night when our body you know we have body scans and all the all the restore restoration if you like happens in those essential seven to eight hours sleep every night and 20-25% um, of that period of time is, is allocated, if you like, to REM and to dreaming. That's why it's so important. It, it really discharges all that emotional stuff from the daytime. And ideally, we would have our REM or our dreaming sleep towards the end of that cycle, seven or eight hours. But when we have too much emotional arousal in the daytime, which usually comes from needs not being met, we start to worry, feel uneasy, start to really ruminate on things. What happens is we will effectively overdream when we're sleeping and then it'll wake us up because the brain actually doesn't like overdreaming and it doesn't like dreaming too early in the night. So it will effectively wake us up. Um, but or, or even if we don't wake up and we sleep for maybe eight, nine, ten hours, a person who's suffering with, with depression will wake up in the morning feeling exhausted because mm. they've done so much dreaming and they actually haven't done enough of the restorative or filing away sleep. So people who suffer with depression, they they start suffering with memory loss and you know they, they can't focus and it's all about this balance has become disrupted because of the emotional arousal in the daytime the balance of dreaming changes during the night time and then what happens is they wake up in the morning feeling exhausted and actually motivation starts to drop when that happens so we call it the cycle of depression and the great thing is it can be fixed um, do we, do you take like the? Have you ever heard of people taking magnesium to sleep? Well, I can't advise on anything 
No, no, I'm not. I'm not advising. I'm just saying. I'm not. I'm not asking you to advise. I'm just saying that I. I sometimes if I find it difficult to sleep, I take magnesium. And there's lots of great things, you know. Maybe protein. I mean, there's there's great. But what what I do is I do help people with sleep disorders, and particularly when people have are depressed or if they've been anxious or suffering with trauma, then the sleep is usually the first thing to get disrupted. So so I do a really nice. Usually try to do a really nice uh, guided imagery about sleep because sleep is one of the most natural things that our body wants and and what happens is we start to try to make it happen mm. whereas in fact we need to just let it take us you know sleep is a, a natural thing but it it becomes disrupted you know given the activities of what we're doing with our our lives and our bodies and our thinking in the daytime um so it's it's yeah it's a tricky one but it's really important and um and as we get older, we need to make sure we continue to get our, you know, a good night's sleep. Yeah, definitely. Um, so one of the things that struck me with human givings um, was the speed at which it had an impact. Um, my, I think if people don't know, or, or maybe the sort of stereotypical view of counselling is that you have to have many, many sessions, lots of talking, lots of deep diving into the issue and where it comes from. And I'm just going to use an example from someone I, I used to know who was in a really bad, bad place. And uh, she was in, um, she was, she had agoraphobia. And so she was stuck in essentially in a room for a long time. Wouldn't even leave a room at, to, for, for periods of a time, really severe stuff. Uh, before um, that period, she would, she was having some therapy and I'm not poo-pooing any type of therapy. It's just for her, this wasn't correct. And um, it was lots of talking. She found it really distressing. Every session she came away feeling worse because for, for whatever it was that they were talking about, it was having a negative, massively negative and stressful impact on her. And we were kind of at a loose end as to what we can do. Like we, what, We've gone to the NHS, we've gone to GPs, we've gone to everything and nothing's working. It really impacts on other people as well, doesn't it? That's the problem. Massively so, massively so. And uh, there was a human givens a, a um, session at someone's work and they came back and said why don't you try this and I swear to god and I'm not lying right there's no hyperbole here she had one session she had one session for about an hour and a half uh, with a, a um, council called Mark and she left the house but she hadn't left the house in six months and she left the house after the session and walked around the block which at that moment was gargantuan it was inconceivable that she'd I know, ever it's amazing to... how her perspective changed it was it was like a switch had been flicked and that and that's and that's what we were dying for we're crying out for something like that like a, a miracle thing to happen which is from that point i've always been a massive proponent for human givens even evangelical about it at times because i, I can see how 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 well it works what do you think it is about this type of therapy that works quickly and effectively in in the people in some, you know, I guess it doesn't work for everybody, but for a lot of people, it works so quickly. What do you for think? People, is it? It, it does. Um, I think if you're respectful to to your clients and and also help them recognise that they actually do have the resources that they need to overcome whatever difficulty they're having. Now, I wasn't in the room with with Mark and, and your friend, um, but I'm I'm thinking that um, quite likely that a, a, tra a traumatic memory was located and it, it was processed, and also then. Mm the rehearsal of being able to walk down the street confidently was 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 covered in that session as well. So I wasn't there, but that would be my approach. Um, if somebody was suffering from an anxiety disorder like OCD or agoraphobia or social anxiety, then my, my approach would be to really understand the, the nub of it. You know, where did that 
thinking and when did that first happen? And often if it's a traumatic memory, it really does just need to get processed. You know, I mean, it's in once it's processed, it's it is put away in the filing cabinet of the brain and all the emotional story attached to that memory has been has been dealt with. So uh, I don't want to sound evangelical either. <laughs> but, and obviously I am a human givens therapist, but yeah. I have seen evidence of this, you know, myself. And it's it's people are stuck for many years and a long time and it's debilitating not just for the person, but for their, their loved ones. And really it's it's something that with with a with a, a trained human givens therapist with understanding and working at the speed of the person, you know, that you're that you have in front of you, that you can really walk you know, help them walk forwards and regain a sense of control and look at what needs weren't being met perhaps at the time or what resources that person had never really had developed. Because the human givens isn't just about the needs, it's about having the right resources as well and we all have the we all have the resources it's just that sometimes you know if we're in a, a toxic environment or through faulty conditioning or through some sort of a brain injury be it a physical or a psychological trauma you know we don't actually access the right resources so finding out what our resources are and what might not actually have been a resource that we had developed enough and also getting our needs met so it's all about the resources and the needs these are our human givens you know, so that person had a good therapist who got straight to it and figured out what the trauma was, perhaps, and and helped them, you know, move mm. forwards quickly. Yeah, the it was it's and uh, do you know what I think it's okay to be evangelical about this, right? Because um, you don't have to do it, and we're not you're not selling anything, right? Um, you this this is if 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 you're listening to this and you're you're suffering for something, it, it can be small, like it doesn't have to be something like anxiety, depression. It could be something like. I want to smoke less. Or I want to drink less. Wine. I'd like to be more positive or procrastinate yeah. less, perhaps, or something. Yeah, I could definitely use some of that as well. Actually, by the way, I might have to have another session. You, know, you have my number. I do. Uh, procrastination is like the one that's awful for it. Um, but uh, what actually do you know much about that? Why? Why? Um, why do people put off doing something that they have to do by doing something equally as laborious? Like, I'll have work to do, but I'll do the washing up. Like, washing up, washing up's as bad as doing the work. Do you know, do you, did you, does that make any sense? Well, I, I suppose that if, if a client came to me and said, I'm procrastinating, I actually choose to do the washing up, which I really hate, rather than getting on and finishing off a job. Well, I'd, I suppose I'd look at what the pattern is there, because the person is pattern yeah. matching. We're constantly pattern matching in, in our environment. So there's a reason, perhaps, why... There's not. There's maybe might be a confidence issue. It might not. Might be a lack of belief. It might be the feeling that if you finish it, what's next? It's about feeling challenged and motivated. And I'd probably look a little behind and ask the person to explain the first time that happened, and you know what their understanding is of themselves in terms of achievement, because achievement is a is a is an innate emotional need, you know as well. So, it's just understanding. There's never a one stop solution. We have to work with how the client perceives the world and what their experience has been and it, and this it seems like an obvious thing but how how confident are you that when the person walks in the door that they'll feel better about the situation within a week of speaking to you than well it's hard to put a timeline you know if you go onto the human givens website um you know we'll you know it's it, we say on there it's it's a it's it's a fairly sort of effective and, and fast approach and, and that's we have to be careful of course that we have to work at the speed of the person but 
our aim in a first session, the first appointment, is that that person leaves feeling more hopeful and that they perhaps have a technique to feel a bit more relaxed and feel more in control of their lives. So that's and, and the thing about human givens is it's we're not tying people up to years of therapy or entering into any contracts or anything like that. You know, you decide on your appointment if you want the next one. You know, it's very much we work at the speed of the person and they may go away and think or they may book straight away or it might be two or three months later. We'll have another appointment. Usually I see my clients maybe for three to six appointments and then I'm around for any maybe phone calls or later sessions, you know, should something else come up. Um, but it does it does tend to move fairly quickly. I think by the time somebody comes in the door, they're they're really willing and really wanting to get out of the place that they're in if they're a bit stuck or if they're really suffering and so I suppose true. there's nothing to be lost by sitting in a room and having someone listen to you for a little bit of time and, and maybe give you some maybe even just a toolkit to make life a bit better yeah the only anxiety at that point is that if this doesn't work then where am I at but the the, the every every single time I've used it it has all, always worked and I've there's only one occasion where I've needed two sessions and it was um and it was something I remember in my brain exactly what it was and exactly how it made me feel. And this would have been about two years ago. And, but now I can't conjure the feeling. I could think about this, this certain thing that happened. I could think about it over and over again, right? Now, and it doesn't conjure any feeling in me at all. But at the time, I couldn't even bear it. I would do everything well, I could. You processed to... it. You took those emotional yeah. hooks off that memory and it got put away properly. But and that was through guided that was through that was through the imagery the guided imagery and that was what that was what they the guy did that helped helped me with that that was fantastic. So you know when when we have a, a traumatic memory so it's it's just a memory that that hasn't yet been properly focused but sorry it's an emotional it's an experience that has not yet been properly processed. So if in the daytime you know that what I was saying earlier we we have emotions to drive us to take actions we take those actions that's great. And when we and if we don't, we sleep. We'll we'll dream about it when we sleep. But if our experience happens and we and we freeze, and we don't actually process that memory, so it just sits there waiting to get processed. So when we get it, when we get a trigger, we emotionally respond to something as if we're in that same place as where we were when the event first happened. Yeah. Well, this one was was I had heard something I wasn't supposed to hear. That's what it was, and the person didn't know that. Couldn't, well, I couldn't talk to the person because they weren't supposed to. They, I wasn't supposed to know this stuff. So I was on my own. There's no <laughs> talk to anybody about it. So it would just ruminate over and over again. I'd wake up in the middle of the night, think about it. In the morning, I'd think about it. It was terrible. And uh, two sessions, and I, I honestly, I can think about it all day now, and it, the, the feeling isn't there anymore. So it's it's kind of not no longer in that sort of emotional center in your brain. It's been filed away nicely as a memory. Never... I'm only bringing it up now because we're talking, but I, don't, I haven't even thought about it for months. You know, you know. So it's incredible, incredible thing. And I do. If anyone does have any problems, and they've, um, you know, they've they've tried other counselling or they're just interested in what we've talked about today, then I do implore you just to just to reach out and have a chat. And I've always found that all of the the guys, the counsellors from Human Givens that I've spoken to, are always happy to talk about it. You always we'd encourage it you know talk first yeah. make sure you like us you know listen to the voice of the person you're speaking to and think that's yeah that'll work for me or no now yeah. I, I prefer I prefer a different gender or somebody from a different back you know whatever the important thing is you're comfortable um so most human givens therapists are happy to have a quick chat 
explain, maybe get a bit of understanding of the situation um, before they'll, you know, you know, have an appointment with you. Yeah, we, we like to understand, listen and encourage the person to take the next step if, if, if and when, you know, they're ready to do so. That's it, really. Yeah. Um, and is it just in the UK or is it in Europe? Is it in America? Where else? I believe, I believe there are some human given therapists in Europe and obviously including Ireland um, and overseas mm. as well. I've certainly trained with, um, with therapists from around the world. So, yeah, I believe, okay. but, but mostly UK is my understanding. Yeah. Fantastic, Elaine. Thank you so much for your time.